Now, there's an old song from the 60s by the birds with a Y. It's with a Y, I think. And the song says, to everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. Um, and a purpose under heaven for everything. Now, this is a pretty catchy 60s jam, you know. But it comes from King Solomon who wrote that line. To everything there is a season. And we've all experienced seasons of life. Like, I, I'm a dramatic person. Not everyone's I'm a storyteller and a dramatic person. So in my, in my life, I have given seasons of life names. I have named epochs of my existence. So, like, there's the semester of sorrow where I filled out of college. There's the summer of sin where things happened. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are just these, 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 there's the tree farm girl years where I pursued my wife into marriage. And these are all different times of life I remember. Now, as we read the scriptures today, we find King David in a good season. And good seasons are hard to come by. Like good seasons, a lot of us remember the bad seasons better, easier than the good seasons. But there have been good seasons, you know. There's, I remember being a kid, and even though we, went, we were in Flint going to rowdy schools, I'd get my head kicked in almost every day at school, bullied like crazy, and even though we lived in the hood, and even though we had no money, I remember the season of life as a kid where it was just me, my brothers, and my mom cutting coupons at the Wyoming house on the east side. And it's a, it, there's good memories, you know. Good seasons are hard to come by, but David's in a good season. See, David's the king of Israel, and David the king loves the Lord his God, and God has given the nation rest. God has given the nation of Israel blessing. Like, there's national wealth going on. There's national safety. And we all, in America, we all experienced that, dude. I remember the 90s. Like, it was like... 99-cent gasoline, it was, I made four twenty-five dollars an hour, and I still had enough money to save up to buy a car. That was crazy. That was nuts. My first car cost me like $200. It was great. Now, it was a crappy car, but still, you can't find that nowadays. Um, but in Israel, there's this, this national safety, and David is at his palace, chilling on his seat, and he's loving life because things are good. And it says of him this, so I'm going to go to 7 verse 1. When the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So David the king has experienced great blessing as a king, as a nation, Look at my life. It's so good. But man, my house is awesome. But God's Ark of the Covenant is still in a 400-year-old tent. Because in the wilderness, they built this tabernacle for God's, like for the worship of God, for the sacrificial system, for the Ark of the Covenant. 400-year-old tent. Dude, I have Coleman's. They last like 10 years. You got to throw them away. You know what I'm saying? Imagine a 400-year-old house built out of fabric. That fabric is old and moldy. It is dusty. It is aged. It is bad. David goes, man, I got a house. I want to build God a new house. I want God to have a house 
at least as good as mine. And David has in his heart to build the Lord a house. And Nathan says to him, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. David feels blessed. And when you're blessed, what do you want to do? When you're blessed, you want to bless someone back. For example, if my neighbor shovels my driveway, and I'm like, what a cool dude to shovel my driveway, you know? My neighbor's an old dude. He's an old Italian guy. He shovels my driveway. So the next snow, you know what I try to do? I try to beat him outside and shovel his driveway. You blessed me. I want to bless you back. Me and my brother go to the movies, and he buys my popcorn. I'm like, thanks, bro, but next time you want to do, I'm going to get him back. I'm going to buy his popcorn. I owe you one, bro. I, I have forgotten. But, uh, <laughs> but we... <laughs> but uh, when someone blesses you, in your heart, there's a desire to bless someone back, right? You want to give back. You want to show appreciation. Now, many of us, though, go a step further. When it comes to God, a lot of us, like David, want to do something big for God to show him how, 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 how much we're in, how much we care about him, how much we like him. People often want to build a house for God. And that house is a metaphor. People want to do something for God to show God, I love you, I like you, I'm going to glorify your name, I'm going to give you praise. So people have all these big dreams to give to God big things. There was, I remember when I was in college, there was this church in Dallas, Texas. They built the most expensive church in American history. They raised millions of dollars, like 20, 30 million dollars. They put out a video, and I watched the video. The video said things like, the front of the church is all glass, and those windows are evangelistic because people can see us singing to God. I'm like, bro, windows are not evangelistic. In the video, they said, well, escalators going up, and the escalators, they raise you up to worship God. And I'm like, these guys are trying to sell this new building as hard as they could, saying, we... And one thing they said in the video, they said, we're in downtown Dallas. Look at all these headquarters of, like, American Express and Delta. God needs a house as big as their houses so we don't feel bad about our God. That's how they try to, like, justify spending all that money. But many of us, I knew a guy, a mentor of mine, who once said, I just want to be God's favorite tool in the toolbox. So this guy worked so hard doing ministry for the Lord. He killed himself doing ministry, and he did it for one reason. He was hoping if he worked hard enough, God would like him more. And a lot of people do a lot of things for God, hoping if I do all these big things for God, then he'll finally like me. Then he'll finally listen to my prayers. If I do these big things for God, then I'll be seen. When I was young, when I was like 19, I had this vision. I almost dropped out of college and hitchhiked to Guatemala. No lie. And my big idea was I'm going to hitchhike to Guatemala, 
and I'll preach Jesus the whole way. In my mind, I wanted to do a big thing for God, a dramatic thing for God. And I hoped if I did that dramatic thing for God, then he might be pleased with me. There's only one problem with doing big things for God. God didn't ask for any of it. Listen to what God says to Nathan, verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go, tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all the places where I moved with all the people of Israel. Did I, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God goes, When did I ever ask for this? I never asked you to build me some big place. I never asked you to do some big thing in my name. David wanted to do something great for God. He didn't pray about it. He didn't think about it. He just acted and tried to do something great for God. But here's the problem. God doesn't ask people to build them houses. God doesn't ask any of us to do big things for his name. I hear Christians say sometimes, I need to defend God's name in the culture. God never asked you to defend his name. <laughs> Imagine, if you will, <sighs> Imagine, I have a 9-year-old and 11-year-old children, a 9-year-old little boy, 11-year-old girl. Imagine I'm out in the world, I'm at a Walmart, I'm at Miter, and someone gets mad at me, starts yelling at me. It happens, we live in Flint, people get mad about stuff, people get start loud. I would try to defuse it, I would try to, you know, de-escalate, because I don't want to fight nobody. Let's say I'm trying to say, man, it's okay, I'm sorry you're mad, it's all good, nothing's going on, dude, I don't know you. Let's say my son gets out of the van and charges this grown man to fight him. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You grab my boy, get him home. I'm like, what are you thinking? Sorry, Dad, I had to defend you. I'm like, son, I never asked you to fight my battles. I never asked you to fight my, like, 40 year old bullies. You're okay. You're nine years old, yo. I see Christians trying to defend God, and God never asks to defend him. He doesn't need our defense. There ain't no one down here who can actually hurt the Lord. They're empty words and their foolish punching doesn't hurt him but we all try to offer these big things for god in america we think bigger is better right the bigger the ministry the bigger the platform the more followers i have then i really do something great for god and i say to that no god didn't ask us to do big things for him he has not the Bible is not a book about what must I do to appease an angry God. That's not the message of the scriptures. David's like, God, I want to build you something. And God's like, I never asked you to build me nothing, David. I'm okay. But God's going to flip the script. God didn't ask us to do big things for us. What did God ask for? Here we go. Verse 8, now therefore, thus Nathan you shall say to my servant David, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. You know what God says? You don't build me a house. I build you a house. That's what he says. God goes, David, you don't got to do nothing for me. I got you, man. I'm going to make a home for you and my people. He describes the home. He says, this home I'm going to give to you. He says, I will plant them. They will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. The idea of home is a powerful idea. I always say, home is where you can wear your crappy pajamas. You know what I'm saying? Because like, if you go to a buddy's house, if you're on, like, on, a, on, a, on a business tour, or you're with, you're with the guys going to see something, you're at a hotel, you can't wear your janky, jank, stained up, 40-year-old pajama jammy. You know, you got to wear nice clothes and all that stuff. But when you're at home, you can wear your crappy, been washed a hundred times, holes in the shirt. You can wear your awful clothes and no one cares. That's home and it's awesome. And a lot of, dude, I was, at, I, was at, uh, I, was, I was literally at Carriage Town, the homeless shelter, and people amen right there. Because in the homeless shelter, they get to wear like normal clothes all day. They can't walk around in their like gross shorts or nothing. They got to be dressed to go outside all the time. Guys, I'll build you a home. I'll build you a place to belong where you're safe. Where you're safe. In foster care, there's a phrase that is used. Because in, in, in Genesee County, we have, in Michigan, we have a lot of kids in foster care waiting to be adopted. And a lot of them are 10, 13, 15. They're sibling groups, you know what I'm saying? And they're very hard to find placements for kids like that. A lot of these kids have real trauma in their past. And so they stay with the state. I, 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 meet, I meet kids all the time who age out of foster care. They're foster care until they're 17, they age out, and they're on their own in the world with no family structure, no peoples by themselves. Now, in foster care, when a family takes a child and adopts that child, they use language, and language is that child has found a forever home. Ever heard that before? They've found a forever home. I knew a guy. He was a janitor. I was at a church, and he was literally the maintenance man for the church. Didn't, he wasn't a very loud guy. wasn't a very outgoing guy. But they asked him to give his testimony at a youth camp I was at. So, and so youth camp, you have all these big preachers coming in. And then one night, the janitor spoke. And I was kind of like, why is the janitor speaking? You know what I'm saying? And he got up there, told the story, how he was a ward of the state. When he was eight years old, him and his brother were adopted, and they were so excited to have a mother and a father. After like two years being there, this family who thought they couldn't have kids got pregnant. And they decided, we have our own kids now. 
we don't want these foster kids anymore. So they told the, the siblings, we're giving you back to the state. And this janitor, this quiet, good man, I remember him saying, like, I remember him just saying to all these young people, he's like, and in that moment, as a 10-year-old boy, I thought, no one wants me. Like, even this, this guy, this, these, this couple said they would love me forever, and even they gave me back. And I remember as a grown man, I had, I had been in the back of the room thinking to myself, what are you going to tell me? And I was back there, and I was undone by the pain this man had gone through in his childhood. The desire for home is a real desire. And God tells David, I'm going to give you a forever home, dude. You want to build something for me? I don't need it. I don't need your house. And just so you know, free one for you. A church is not a building. Flint City Church, listen, I know we're in a basement, and I know it's gross and hot. There's a layer of sweat all over my body, okay? I, blam, I understand where we're at. It's hot in the summer. It's cold in the winter. There's tiles popping up. It's not awesome, okay? But we, at a church, we have moved. We've moved five times in six years. Because a church is not a building. A church is a collection of people who all love Jesus and are committed to love one another. And we do. That's what a church is. Do I want a building? Of course I do. Do we need one? No, we don't. God says to David, I'm going to make you a forever home where you and my people will be safe forever. And every one of us wants that. A place where we're safe, a place where I'm home, where I am I'm loved and known and safe. But here's a question. I, we, all, we all want that, and God promised it to David. God promised David someday... Through one of your kids, I will bring a forever home to people Israel. We all know that seasons end, right? There are good times, and good times end. Like right now is not a good time for most of us in this room. Financially, we're all stretched, aren't we? I went to the gas pump yesterday, or Thursday. I pull up to the gas pump. Went to go put, went to pump gas. I looked at the price on the thing. I, I literally go, oh, man, the, the price is wrong on the pump. And I put it back. I went to the sign to look at the sign on the road. I thought, I, I, I thought, I, I, I don't know what I was thinking. I was thinking to myself, well, it can't be that. And I went up to the thing, and it was 519. And I was like, oh, no, like, it is that. Like, but I, I, was, I was in denial the whole time. Like, in my mind, it was still 449, the good old days, you know, um, <laughs> like two months ago. Um, listen, food is up right now, right? Chicken costs 30% more than it did two months ago. Like groceries cost more, gas costs more. The cost of living is rising, and most of us, our income is static. So we feel the budget tightening. It's a hard time for many people. They say it's the hardest on the lower middle class and the, and the lower class of America. It's a hard season. Our thought is, well, how can God bring a forever home? What if, in order to have a forever home, you need somebody to keep the home stable? 
You need a forever leader, a forever parent, a forever overseer to keep the house from sliding back into chaos, right? And God takes care of that too. That's what God says. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David, I'm going to give you a forever home, but to give you a forever home, I'm going to give you a forever king to lead that forever home. And that's the promise God makes to David. There are these promises in the Bible we need to understand. We find one in Genesis 12 where God promises Abraham that one of Abraham's kids will be a blessing to every family on the earth. Exodus 20 where God gives the Ten Commandments and reveals his holy law to the world. And then here in 2 Samuel 7 where God promises David that one day one of David's kids one of his kids will be a forever king and bring to God's people a forever home. And we're like, well, where's that at? Listen, God keeps his promises. We don't. The best of us can't keep our promises all the time. We can't. Things happen. I told my kids the other day, I'm like, you know, Wednesday night, we'll do this, this, and this. And then when the night emergency came up, and I was gone all night. It happens. Sometimes you can make promises, and they get broken. The best intentions are undone, but the God of heaven makes promises and has the power and authority to keep his promises. And God promised David, someday from, the, from David's kids will come a king, a forever king. And this forever king will bring a forever home to all God's people. And who's a forever king? The son of David is the one we preach and proclaim, the one we call Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised son of David. In Matthew 1.1, when Matthew writes the story of Jesus, he begins the story so strongly. He says, listen, you want to know who Jesus is? Well, here's the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The promises we've been waiting for for thousands of years have found their fulfillment in this person named Jesus. Jesus is God's forever king. What does that mean for us? It means that on the cross, Jesus did not lose the fight. He won the fight on the throne. He won the fight on the cross. Like, how can you win by losing? He pulled it off. Jesus died that we may live. Jesus Christ reigns in heaven, and he's in control right now. Even in the midst of our inflation, even in, in, in the midst of such societal tension and strife, Jesus Christ is still on the throne, and he's still moving his plan into fruition. Jesus is still the king, and because he's the king, if you are in Christ, you have a home in him. That home may not be a bedroom. 
that home may not be a really nice house on the lake. The home is in him. That means wherever you go, whatever's going on, whatever you lose, whoever you lose, whatever happens, if I am in Christ, I am not alone. When Angie and I were living in India, I told the story that they came, they came, my wife and I have a, of all the seasons of life we've shared, one of the titles we've given to our life, there's a, was it a Tuesday? We call it the worst day of our lives. And we say that we both know what it is. We've, it's a name, we've labeled it. It's the day we... It's a day we found out we had a miscarriage, but also miscarriage ended up being a ectopic pregnancy, which put her life in danger. And on the same day that happened, the police came to arrest me for preaching Jesus in India. Worst day of our lives. I remember being in the hospital. They wheeled Angie off in a wheelchair, and the doctors were scared. There was nervousness in the air. And we knew we were going to lose the baby. We knew the baby was gone. We didn't know if Angie was going to survive. And as I got on the chair, I took her hand, and she gave me the, the dying wife speech. Move on. Love again. It's okay. And I wheeled her away. I sat there in a waiting room in a foreign country where all my dreams were dying in the next room. I'm going to lose a child. I'm going to lose my best friend. I'm all by myself here in this foreign land. Now, if there's a moment to panic, that's the moment. If there's a moment to lose your mind, that's the moment. I didn't know what to do. I had no cell phone to call anyone. I sat there in that moment of great lostness. I looked up, I looking down. I bowed my head in prayer. And I'm like, Lord, I'm scared, and I need you. And there, in the midst of all those people, in that great land of India, I was at home in the Lord. Even though everything that could be shaken was shaken. It's almost like I felt the arms of God around me like you're, you're not alone. He didn't tell me it's going to be okay. I didn't get that. Because sometimes it's not okay. Right? Sometimes our loved ones don't make it. Sometimes the news is bad news. We don't get the job. Our kid is using Sometimes the news is bad. And God's and, and Christ is like, I know it's bad and I know it's hard. I am with you. And we have our home in the Lord. And that is part of the good news being in Jesus. Jesus is not about merely heaven. We have Christ here and now. 
in this hard land, we have Jesus. We are not alone. God promised David someday. David goes, God, I'm going to build you a house. God's like, I don't need your house. For those of you who are trying to do something great for God, I would tell you, slow, slow down. Rest in him. Rest in his love. Listen, there's a story in the Bible of two sisters, right? Mary and Martha. And one is all busy doing chores and all mad that the other sister is at Jesus' feet just hanging out with them. And she's like, Jesus, tell my lazy sister to get off her booty and help me clean the house. And Jesus goes, the sister at my feet has chosen the better thing. Stop trying to do great things for God and instead try to learn how to sit at the feet of a great God. The gospel is not how good and big you can be. The gospel, the good news, how big and great he already is. He's do, he is doing all this for us. He's not saying, show me what you got. God is saying, look what I got for you in the person of my son, Jesus Christ. Look at my son. Know my son. Love my son. Rest in my son, and you shall be satisfied. We got to, some of us have to stop trying so hard to get God to like us. We reveal our insecurity. We reveal our cards. God, please like me. You ever have a friend, and your friend's always like, dude, dude, we're friends, right? You're like, yeah, dude. It gets annoying after a while. Don't you know we're cool? Stop being so insecure. Your insecurity Pushes away all the people who want to love you. You like me, right? Please? Candy? Don't be that person. When it comes to the Lord, he, you know how you know the Lord loves you? He gave his son for you. He came for you. Here's how we're going to end our service today. We're going to take communion. If you don't have a communion cup, we're going to pass those out right now. If you need a communion vessel, you can raise your hand and Miss Deb will pass them out to you. She's coming along right now. If, you're, if you are at home, go to your kitchen, grab some bread and grab some water. I mean, Christ makes water into wine, so it's all good. Go grab yourself some, some elements. We're going communion together. We're passing those out right now. Now, you don't got to take. If you're here and you don't want to take, you don't have to. So who can take communion, okay? If you are here or watching online and you love Jesus, you can take communion. You don't got to be a member of Flint City Church. You don't got to be like a Baptist Presbyterian person. If you love Jesus, you're in. You're in. Okay? I need one too. Wait, I have one. Oh, dang. Okay, thank you, baby. So what is communion? Communion, our God is so cool and so wise. Before Jesus left, Jesus, Jesus told his followers, they're having a meal. Before the night, the night he was going to die, they had a meal. And Christ took bread and broke it and said, 
this is my body that's going to be broken for you. They didn't get it. He took some wine and said, this cup is my blood poured out for you. They didn't get it. And Jesus said, listen, as often as you do this, you remember me until I return. And for 2,000 years, Christians across the world have been taking the cup and taking the bread. And we take it for two reasons. One, we take it to remember what Christ did. Christ died for us. He died for us because he loves us. And we take it with a grateful heart. Thank you, Lord, for making a way for me, for us. We also take it looking forward to when he returns. Because listen, I know we're not home yet. I, it's harder out there than a lot of us understand. A lot of us pretend we built the fence, we built the house, we pretend we can control our lives, but we can't. There's real loss out, outside. There's real loss inside. We, like the Bible ends, we pray the same thing the Apostle John prays, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's crazy out there. We take this remembering what he did and we take it yearning for Christ to return and to make it all okay again. So we're going to take this bread and take this cup. Now before we take it, the Bible says you should examine yourself before you take, take the cup. We take a moment of silence. We're going to bow our heads. If you have unconfessed sin, confess it. If you're mad at God, apologize a moment to get right before we take the cup together. So let's go ahead and have a moment of silence.